Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church of Murfreesboro. It is an honor and privilege to share this time with you. We love studying the scriptures and feel they are central to our preaching, teaching, and living of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Our mission here is to grow disciples of Jesus Christ who know him, love him, and serve him for the transformation of Murfreesboro and the world. It is our prayer that God would use our preaching and teaching to do exactly that. If you have questions, thoughts, ideas, or just want to talk a little bit more about what you've heard today, we love to hear from you. Most of all, know that you are in our prayers as we listen together. Now, let's dive in. All month, we've been in this whole life stewardship uh, campaign type thing called Next Steps. Its point is helping us to recognize how God invites us to see the world in our whole of our lives as a gift from God and how God invites us to use those gifts that God has given us for God's purpose. So this morning will be our final Um, part of this one. And next week is All Saints Sunday for those of you who might want to know that. So I invite you to join me in prayer and then we will read from 1 Timothy this morning. Loving God, we thank you for the gifts that you have given us, for the ways in which you show us how to use them. We pray this day that you might challenge us to see beyond something that we've always known or heard And help us to see something new. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Amen. Hear these words from 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 10. Whoever teaches otherwise and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that is in accordance with godliness is conceited understanding nothing and has a morbid craving for controversy and for disputes about words. For these come envy, dissension, slander, base suspicions, and wrangling among those who are depraved in mind and bereft of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Of course, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment, For we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. The word of God for the people of God, and so we say, thanks be to God. Timothy has labored so hard in Ephesus against all sorts of false teachings, rooted in an unhealthy fascination with parts of the Old Testament and a dangerous infatuation with money, power, 
and status in the church. This letter that we see from Paul this morning comes to him as an encouraging word. And I must note that Paul and I do not always see eye to eye. So just be aware of that as we work through this. This letter is helpful by giving words of practical teaching for Timothy, who is, who is dealing and in the midst of all of this chaos in which he's living. And they're words of encouragement about nature, of life, of ministry, and of people. It makes one wonder what assumptions we might have as we lead the church in stewardship, discipleship, mission, vision, and engagement with the culture around us. There are four assumptions that come to mind. The first one is that we all have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, leading to clarity about how we have been created for a shared purpose and mission. Our baptism is a sign of this. But is that a good assumption? The second, we have this expectation that we have the same shoulds and oughts that all will live into when it comes to being a part of the life of the church. I wonder if this assumption has led to moments of disappointment and disillusionment from the anger that is often geared towards people who do not have the same shoulds and wants or oughts as we do. This is also the source of much guilt and frustration, which used to drive church behavior. But now, it just drives people away. The third assumption, that everyone understands the shift that this church has made over the last few years. We were a wonderful, low-expectation church. Show up, enjoy, support, often financially if you'd like, and let us keep you happy and tend to you. We are no longer that. We are now a high expectation church where our goal is to grow disciples of Jesus Christ who know him, love him, serve him, and share him for the transformation of Murfreesboro and the world. People can still come and they still do come and enjoy, but unlimited passive participation is no longer part of our core identity here. Finally, we come to this solution or assumption that seems apparent that we are a place whose purpose is to appear as though we have it all together and that we cast judgment on all who do not. A space of entertainment and support just for those who walk through our doors. Or put in a different way, I want to invite you to take a moment. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to receive this question. Allow it to settle in your minds and in your hearts for just a moment. How would you define the purpose of the church, the community of faith? Is it primarily an institution for spiritual support and entertainment? Is it primarily a place of religious perfection and judgment of all? 
or is it a disciple growing family? You can open your eyes. The other question that goes along with this is are we on the same page in our understanding of where we are? And if not, we have an identity crisis on our hands. In 1 Timothy 6, we find Paul helping Timothy deal with the early identity crisis of the church, of that community of faith that has continued to become what it is today. It's a strange little turn of phrase in verses 3 through 5. There are false teachers at Ephesus who imagine godliness as a means of personal gain. The rotten fruit of their teaching is made clear. They are arrogant and love controversy and disputes about words and the prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures. In the wake of their teachings, you find envy, strife, slander, suspicions, constant frictions, corrupted minds, and not the beautiful truth of Jesus. These are what could be considered the what's-in-it-for-me people in the church. Now, I would venture to say that many of us, if not all of us, start at that point of what's-in-it-for-me. How could we not? But we can't stay there. The only reason or, or ease, ease that you could stay there is unless you understand the church as just an institution for spiritual support and entertainment. If the purpose of the church is to tend to me, keep me happy, and my children entertained, then you can probably stay in the what's in it for me. And frankly, when we find ourselves in that space of what's in it for me, it can be really hard to see beyond ourselves. The problem, Paul says, says, is that it leads to senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. No question there is a complicated relationship between, between godliness, church, gain, contentment, and destruction. Paul is writing specifically about people in the church whose primary purpose is to get rich or who comes to the church to find an authoritative place to be known in the community. Some 1,700 years ago, our own John Wesley, who started the Methodist revival among the blue-collar people of England, wrote that he was worried that the people called Methodists would cease to exist. Why, you may ask? Because their growth in godliness led to family stability. That led to education. That led to better jobs. That led to financial stability. That led to the accumulation of riches, which then tempted even the most faithful. They were barking up the money tree, and they didn't always realize it. Paul says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and Wesley recognized it too, even among his own people. The curse of financial security is that it can, if we're not so very careful, replace Jesus as the Lord of your life 
and become more important than everything else in your life. I think we are finding that there is a new type of eagerness to be rich afflicting us today. It is the permeance of our own happiness. Because of our wealth, the nature of culture, and our place in the world, we can put our lives together in such a way so as to be happy and entertained at all times. I have to check that even within myself. And I have watched many faithful church people hesitating in important decisions about whether to pursue the happiness of their family or the call of Jesus on their family. If you primarily understand the church as an institution for spiritual support and entertainment, then you will likely be deeply concerned that you, your children, and your grandchildren will be happy and entertained at all times. Now, if you understand the church as a place of religious perfection and judgment on all people, you'll probably not be worried about being entertained all the time. You'll be worried about being right all the time. In this understanding, one is looking for comfortability, comfortability of no one questioning their beliefs from preachers, teachers, who would only be right in their teachings if you felt it was right. No one would be challenged in their faith, nor would anyone question you about your faith. Typically, those who challenge or disagree with you would be run out of the church until the only people left in the church are those who affirm your thoughts and ideas. The trouble with this is that Jesus gets slowly pushed out of favor. Instead, the idolatrous relationships with those Bible teachers who have it all figured out. This is another kind of riches about which Paul warns. The riches of being right all the time. Unless your church name tag says God on it, I hate to break it to you, but we're not right all the time. Nor do we know or have all of the answers. Often we are simply going with what we know and understand. And it doesn't mean that we can't be wrong. And if you're not right all the time, humility becomes your posture. Now, if you understand the church as a disciple-growing family, you will not be surprised at the, stand, at the required posture of humility, the sacrifice of ego, the constant evaluation of your priorities, the standards of holiness, which much must be kept in gracious and careful ways. And that the place is a bit challenging at and quite messy as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, celebrating the reign of Christ, which is coming to the world, investing in the, in the people that the culture has written off, and living in the complicated mess 
of ministry with real people in a particular way that honors Jesus and who Jesus has called us to be. Last week, I spent some time with the United Women of Faith. From across our conference at Bershiba Springs, I had the opportunity to go and lead their retreat. It was a beautiful weekend. The weather was absolutely amazing. And we had a lovely time. Throughout Saturday, we had um, three sessions, three or four sessions that we had. And they were defined by our overall theme, which was missions. And within that, I created those three sessions to be three specific topics. Hesitancy, authenticity, and community. As we discussed each of these words and watched throughout scripture as God showed us through story what living into these words looked like, we learned that living into the call that God has placed on our lives is messy, complicated, often uncomfortable, and very challenging. But it can also be invigorating joyful, exciting, and can open us up to new possibilities in ways that we hadn't dreamt yet. We have seen this in our church. When we looked outside of ourselves as a church and lived into who and what God has called us to be without judgment, we see possibilities arise around every corner. And if you want proof of that, Look at what we are doing in missions. Look at what we are doing in children and youth and adults. Just open your eyes. We aren't perfect at it. We don't have all the answers. But we are trying. We hope that as we gather each week, that we don't find ourselves asking the question, is this going to keep me happy? Is coming to this place going to keep me happy? Or what's going to keep me here? Or what's going to push my button this week that inspires me to come back next week? We are not right all the time. We do not have all of the answers to the questions. In fact, the more I grow up, the less I know. But we're looking at the whole of our lives and saying, what have I got that God has gifted to me, to us, that can be put for this community of faith whose sole purpose is to grow real disciples of Jesus Christ? We are not an institution for spiritual support and entertainment. We're not a place of religious perfection and judgment of all or any. We've been healed. By the grace of God, we are becoming a church whose sole purpose is to grow disciples of Jesus Christ. I think it's time that all of us continue to pray for the Holy Spirit to stir up whatever gifts are inside of each of us. 
that we might be able to bring to the table even more than we already are. And maybe we can put them all together and create something even more beautiful than we could have thought or imagined for the sake of God's mission in the world. I pray that it be so. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, may the people of God say, Amen.